Attention, please. Places for top of show. Places for top of show. Hello, and welcome to Twins Talk Theater. We are Cindy and Stacy, and we're talking about theater, backstage life, and all the excitement that the audience doesn't get to see. Enjoy the show. Welcome to this week's podcast, everyone. Today, we're interviewing an old colleague of mine, Jennifer Lee Sears Shire. She's been married since I met her. I met Jen, I think it was 2012 or 13. Uh, we both worked at Long Beach Opera together. She had already stage managed a few shows. The particular show I met her on was Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat, where I was a, a stage manager and Jen was the ASM, and we just kind of knocked that show out. We did a few other shows after that. Um, so she's an equity stage manager. When I met her, she had just gotten her master's degree from, I think it was University of Iowa in stage management. And then after a few years in the field, Jen decided to go back to school. And she is now in her second year of a PhD program at the University of Illinois. And it's going to be a PhD in theater studies with a focus on American stage management from 19, no, 1850 to 1950s is a mouthful. So Jen, welcome to our podcast. Welcome. Uh, I, was, I wanted to bring you on just to talk about kind of how you got into theater. Um, I know you worked in San Diego for a while. You were at Knoxville. You are at Long Beach Opera with me, obviously. And then what kind of led you to decide to go back into academia and go back into school? And especially PhD, because that's such an unusual thing, especially for stage managers. Most stage managers don't even have a master's degree, and here you are getting your PhD in it. So... <laughs> Let's kind of start from the beginning. How did you get involved in theater? It was much more of a coincidence, I feel like. I was a freshman in college, and I needed to have an art uh, course. And the course that I ended up taking was technical theater. And the professor told me, or, you know, announced to the class that they were in need of someone to just help out backstage Um I think that it was like to run a spot off for that particular production. And so after the class, I told him that I was interested in doing it. You know, I was fresh on campus. I didn't know anyone. I really wanted to meet new people. So I decided why not give theater a chance. Um, and as the semester progressed, he was looking at like my, my paperwork for the class and decided midway through the semester that I needed to learn how to stage manage. And so he put me in touch with the stage manager that they had for the department. It was a very small department. Uh, and so there's really only the one stage manager. And so that stage manager kind of took me under his wing. Uh, and so I uh, did Spotlight for the very first production that semester. And then I ASM'd for the second uh show of that semester. And the person that was stage managing graduated in December, which meant that I started stage managing the following January. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was a crash, uh, you know, crash I, course. Yeah, exactly. I learned a lot on my feet. <laughs> um, it was a quite an experience. Uh, and I was their standard stage manager for the next, you know, three and a half years until I graduated. Um, and sometime during my senior year, I realized, you know, there were other people that have made a career out of stage managing. And I decided that I wanted to learn more about it in an actual um, 
learning environment. Like I did, I felt too green to be able to just jump into the world of theater. I really felt like I needed to go to another school in order to learn more about how to stage manage the terminology. Like I, even though I had was the sole stage manager for those couple of years, I just felt so green that I um, applied to a bunch of different MFA programs in stage management and ended up at the University of Iowa. Uh, where I learned a ton. And during my second second year there, uh, I was in a equity stage management class where we were kind of talking about the rule book um, for equity. Uh, and That's cool. I don't know many places that do that. Yeah, I was just going to say, we. I, th- I had a stage management class and we took like two days to talk about unions and that's it. But you had a whole class dedicated to it. Yeah, I had a whole class I was dedicated to it. My final for that class, oh, it was rough because we had to, um, the questions kind of grouped together three or four different rules from the equity rule book. And we needed to know where to be able to find those particular rules in the rule book and then write the answer to them in it. It was really rough. That's that's intense. Yeah, but now you Um, know all that stuff. I have no idea. (laughs) <laughs> I learned a lot about the equity, at least the Lord rule book, because that was the one we were using in the class. But still, like, it taught me a lot as to what to expect once I did get out into the real world. So that was really fun. Um, but in the course of that, uh, the professor had actually given us two really old news articles from the New York Times. Um, if I remember correctly, one was dated 1919 and one was dated, like, 1924. And they were basically along the lines of, what does the stage manager do? And they almost perfectly described our task today. So when I was reading them, I just had this bug that kind of, you know, planted itself in my brain, kind of asking that question of, if we've been really doing the same job for the last hundred years, does that mean that we've always been doing the same exact job? And so it kind of like got that rolling and, um, During the course of that second year, I decided I wanted to do an academic MFA um, thesis. So instead of doing the normal production thesis that all of my peers did, I spent the summer in at Harvard, Yale, uh, Folger Shakespeare Library, and a couple of other different libraries, basically looking at really old prompt books, specifically ones that were dated 1750 to 1850 um, in American theaters like the Walnut and um, other really old uh, theaters like that in order to write my MFA thesis. And what I found was that theater was drastically different before 1850. Um, really, it was the prompter that was kind of like doing our job during that time frame, um, whereas the stage manager was much more of a directorial figure. And so I finished out my MFA thesis my last year, and I decided that I wanted to um, get more experience in the professional world as far as stage managing goes. So I left um, Iowa. I kind of spent a year going all over the country doing a lot of freelance work, and then I ended up in San Diego um, doing a lot of work, uh, again, Long Beach Opera, kind of like traveling a little bit during those five years. And then finally I decided that... Um, I needed to get back because really 
the, the big question that was burning in my mind during this whole time frame was how did we get from the prompter to being the stage manager? Like how did all of those titles kind of move around? And I didn't quite get to that answer in my MFA thesis because I found that it probably happened more like an 1870 kind of time frame. Uh, and so that's why I decided to come back to school was because I I'm a nerd and I just really needed to know the answer. And I knew that there weren't any books that were going to tell me that answer. So you so, decided, well, I'll just go back to school and do the research myself and figure it out for everybody else. Exactly, exactly. So if there are no books and stuff on it, where are you finding your research? Um, so an excellent question. I am literally having to go back to primary documents in order to really find all of the information that I've gathered so far, which is a really, really long process. Um, for the most part, a lot of the information I found out about prompters, specifically during that 1750 to 1850, were actually like hidden in memoirs that people had written about theater during that time frame, where they would talk about where the prompter was sitting during the rehearsal. You know, and they, they were like throwaway comments in these memoirs where they were really describing what was going on in the rehearsal. But as a result of that, they were saying, oh, and the prompter was sitting at this table on, on you know, prompter side or off prompt side. And or they would, um, you know, indicate something else as far as like what their duties were or where they were placed inside the theater. And so I just kind of started building up that information. Um, so you just read a bunch of did you read a bunch of the memoirs did you just read sections of them or did you read all of them just to kind of figure out because uh, you didn't know where that information was it depends on the memoir um there are actually a lot of memoirs that are like available via either Hathi trust um which is kind of like a digitized uh website um so the great thing about Happy Trust is that you can actually kind of like search for keywords. And so that was actually what a big thing that I did was, particularly during my MFA, was to find out whether or not these memoirs even had anything that I wanted. And then I would right. go back and I'd read like this the, the memoir to find out what exactly they were saying about the prompter and that kind of stuff. But to figure out whether or not they were going to be useful to me, I use that tool a lot, a lot. <laughs> so you're not like reading hundreds and hundreds of pages that mean absolutely nothing to your thesis but yeah <laughs> that makes sense I, I would read hundreds yeah. hundreds of papers that meant nothing but I also read a lot of like other things that like all of a sudden you know it would all it would be worth it to read that 200 page book when you know in the middle of nowhere they just suddenly said you know the prompter's bell was ringing at the beginning of the performance and the audience member was like super excited because the prompter's bell was going off and that meant something was going to happen in the show or, you know, like really crazy, like one liners. And I get so excited and <laughs> look at me like I was a dork because no one understood. <laughs> <laughs> but what I think is awesome about, which is kind of like later in the conversation, but you're now writing a blog for, I think it's Stage Direction Magazine. Yes. Yep. Me, it's a, a stage management blog, but what I love is that you're sharing it now with all these other stage managers. And from what I've seen on Facebook, almost every stage manager is a nerd. So they're just eating it up, learning about all this history that you've done all the research on. Yeah, I just, uh, <laughs> I just had an article shared through 
women in theater on a Facebook page. And it was your one of your articles about it. And I went to say, good job, Jin. And then you weren't even in the group. And I was like, nice, even better. <laughs> I know. It's, it's so crazy how far those articles have really gone. It kind of actually makes me a little bit nervous about how far that they've really, like, you know, gotten to a bunch of different people. I've had several people reach out to me on email wanting to talk more about things or um, uh, randomly. One of the girls that's also in the PhD program with me apparently has a student SM that she used to like work with in a different location and apparently figured out that we were going to school at the same time together. And so she was like, oh my God, my friend is like so in love with everything that you write. And I was like, oh my God, this is weird. (laughs) (laughs) So how did you get into that? Like, do you, how did you make that connection with Stage Direction Magazine? Was it something that you found through school or how did you even start writing for them? Uh, So David J. McGraw, who was um, uh, uh, for simplicity's sake, the head of stage management at the University of Iowa, um, uh, he actually started his own blog. He's got a blog called SM Kit that's also on Stage Directions, and he deals with a lot more contemporary issues, talking about technology. Um, He, of course, does the SM survey every other year. Right. Um, yeah. Okay. I was like, I know that name sounds familiar. We mm-hmm. just got the results from that like two weeks ago, I think. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And so as um, my former professor, he was also the one that taught that equity class, by the way. <laughs> I like this guy. I like this guy. <laughs> <laughs> he um, reached out to me when I first returned to academia and was like, hey, listen, if there's ever a topic that you're like really interested in and want to write about, you know, like I have this blog, like you should totally send me something, you know, like anything that you want to write about. And so that's actually where I first wrote the, um, uh, I think my first one was why stage managers are included in the equity union. Uh, I think that was the first blog that I sent out. And then the second one was why is it important for us to study stage management history? And between the two of those, Um, It just generated a lot of interest and the stage directions decided to offer me my own blog. (laughs) So it's kind of taken off from there. (laughs) That is really awesome. You write, I mean, I was looking at the the articles you've written under your own blog. Do you kind of try to do one monthly or is it just whenever you have enough information or an idea for one? Because it's all online, right? Or is it published Um, For the most part, it's online, although um, a couple of them have been published or earmarked for the printed version of Stage Directions. Um, All kind of depends. Um, It's more, I think, about word count than anything. That's going to sound weird, but um, it is my aim to write about 1,500 uh, words every single month. So whether or not that's three short 500-word articles or if it's like one lump sum one, um, that's kind of like what we're kind of working on. Um, but it, since it's still fairly new in the process, I think that it'll take a while for us to um, 
really get into the habit of having like three a month um, kind of a thing. But again, it, I think it'll depend on a month to month basis, depending on the topic and what's going on. But I have tons of ideas. I think that I have planned out my articles all the way into like August or summer. <laughs> <laughs> tons of ideas. <laughs> so then do a lot of these, do a lot of the articles that you've written so far, um, your first two were, uh, crash course in American stage management history one and two women in stage management murder on stage which was my favorite one so far oh, that one was pretty totally cool I like wanted that one. to do that um, and then your latest one was stage I think latest one stage management grievances in 1942 do all of these kind of you've you found all of these while you're working on your PhD or are they all kind of included in your PhD or is it you haven't quite figured out exactly what your PhD is going to be. And this is just interesting articles or interesting topics that you found along the way that you want to share with people. Um, I would say that it's a combination of all of those things. Um, in particular, so I am well known among my own PhD faculty for being someone who likes to kill multiple birds with one stone. So if inside my classes they say, hey, BT dubs, you have to write a 15-page paper by the end of the semester, then I go, okay, great. How can I take this topic that this class is about and kind of like maneuver it around things that I'm interested in? So for example- the That is the smartest TV, way to be interested in something. <laughs> it is because yeah. then I don't feel like gashing out my eyes at the end of the semester trying to write a paper that I really don't care about. <laughs> exactly, good job. <laughs> Um, so for example, that, um, murder on stage, it actually started, I did a, um, it was, uh, an, a dramaturgy class in the dramaturgy class was specifically looking at historical, um, hi uh, historically based works or, um, verbatim theater, um, it was like a combination of a, uh, like a couple of different things, but basically the parameters were that it, like, we needed to base a show on a real life event. Um, so some of the other topics that other people did were like Astor Place riots, um, other like monumental events that have occurred. Um, you know, we looked at, um, I'm trying to even remember the like plays that we read. <laughs> Um, uh, I'm not going to be able to remember. <laughs> I, I can't think of any plays. All that's coming to my mind right now are operas that have been based on real events. But... Yeah, I was like, we just watched an opera, Cindy. <laughs> that's exactly what I'm thinking about, too. <laughs> uh, either way, though, I decided that I was going to use that event in order to, like, create my show. And so we had to write, like, 15 pages of a script. And then we were basically doing dramaturgy with a partner. So somebody dramaturged my work and then I dramaturged their work kind oh, of a cool. thing. So that was like the start of that project. Um, but then this fall, I ended up doing a historiography class. Um, and historiography is basically looking at how historians have written about a subject. Um, for this particular class, we were kind of looking at how historians have looked at actresses um, kind of looking at the different tropes that actresses have usually fallen into. So talking about how a lot of historians discuss um, 
prostitution as it relates to acting and mm, a right. number of different works and kind of like looking at what are the contemporary issues and assumptions that we make about actresses that historians have also made and included inside their works. And so at the end of the semester, we kind of had to write our own um, paper on any topic as long as it's somewhat related to historiography in theater and preferably with actresses. And so I decided that I was going to use all of the newspaper um, articles that I found during the last spring for the dramaturgy class um, to write about all of the challenges that a historian has when looking at an event like the murder of the stage manager in that um, situation. Because the fact is, is that a lot of those newspapers were biased and they were very apparent in their bias, their biasness. And right. so, um, and then just looking at how like values have changed over time, you know, like something that was probably, so for example, um, in only one out of the like hundred articles that I read about this murder, did they explicitly start talking about the sexual harassment that she had endured from the stage manager? And so that would have been a very taboo subject for them to talk about. So the fact that it was included in one of those in some ways makes it like weightier, but then it also caused you to wonder, are they just including it for the ratings? Like, are they just doing it to sell newspapers or was this an actual? So those are all the questions that as a historian, you really have to ask yourself when you're looking at that primary material. Like, is this original material like actually worth what it's saying or are they like, are they kind of making up stuff in order to get more people to read their newspaper? Yeah, yeah. Or even, like, is their own assumptions preventing them from really seeing the clear picture? There's just a, a number of, like, questions that historians really have to ask themselves when they deal with it. Um, but the biggest one is, like, how skewed is this material? Um, and how can we get it so that we can corroborate that material with some other resource? So right. I wish that I could have found, like, the original trial records because that would have been amazing to be able to, like, take a look at how it was being reported versus, like, what was actually being said in the courtroom. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that, like, there's just so many, I don't even read newspaper articles or anything anymore because so many times when they're like, hey, did you read this review? And I read the review on the show and I'm like, well, you got the lead actress's name wrong and you talked nothing about the set design and you don't even mention what theater it's in and and all that stuff. And so I don't even read reviews anymore. So in 500 years, when historians look back to see what we were doing today, what are they getting? I mean, now we have Facebook and Instagram and 5 million sources every five seconds, but... But yeah, still, everything's biased or maybe not correct or, you know, they have to pump it out so fast that not all the information's there. Right, exactly. And especially back then, because a lot of these people were not even in Chattanooga when they were writing about it. They were basically just getting information from other people. So it was like a game of telephone as well. You know, like, like half of the articles talked about how you know, um, the audience was there and actually witnessed her come back out on stage and shoot the stage manager, like, in front of everyone. And that that theater at the time supposedly sat, like, 1,500 people. So that's a lot of people, you know, to witness. Right, murder. Everything. 
Whereas other articles were like, the curtain was down, it was moments before the show started. And so you just have to wonder, like, how can that one detail, which either has 1,500 people, plus everybody that was backstage and all of that kind of stuff, how can that one detail that seems so obvious to me be skewed? <laughs> right. Did it happen or did it not happen? How is that different? <laughs> right. <laughs> So are, are you running into a lot of these discrepancies as you're trying to, to research your PhD for, like, are you finding a lot of opinions? Because to me, it kind of seems like what you're researching, um, American stage management from 1850s to 1950s, in my mind, shouldn't really be biased. I understand how it's biased towards females or biased towards minorities, but are you finding a lot of bias in, in the articles and the memoirs that you're reading or... Do a lot of them seem to to line up and work with each other? Um, yes and no. Um, because of the nature of the time frame that I'm looking at. So in 1850, there was a clear prompter and a clear stage manager. And around 1870, all of a sudden, we start having this director figure kind of show up. So the first stage management handbook that I've really been able to find is dated roughly 1872. It's not really a stage management handbook. It's more of like how we put up private theatricals, I think is almost literally the title name. And then there's a couple of others that are around that same thing where it talks about like, if you were to put up a production, these are the steps that you need to take. And so in those books that I found so far, they are defining what a stage manager is and what a prompter does. Um, and so when we start looking from, so that was 1872, and then gradually as you get into the handbooks that are dated later and later, so 1920, 1934, we see this slow change where the prompter um, title is slowly changed to assistant stage manager. So in the very first one we have the prompter did blank and then the next one will have the prompter or the assistant stage manager did whatever and then the next one is you know the assistant stage manager or prompter as they used to be called did you know whatever and we see these changing roles that are kind of going on until finally in roughly 1940 the prompter title is just eradicated. It's just out of the books from almost then on. And so now we have the assistant stage manager and then the stage manager. And so then again, the definition of the stage manager also drastically changes over that time. So we're able to somewhat use all of the other books to kind of figure out what the clear picture is, which is roughly that it was chaotic and that it's probably roughly similar to today in that, you know, a stage manager in a 99 seat house is probably going to have different responsibilities than the stage manager on Broadway, you know? Like, so true. We have discrepancies within our field even today. Um, but I think that it will be able to help figure out like a clear picture, um, as far as like, so specifically my PhD is going to be relating the labor of the stage manager. And I'm looking at it through a couple of different lenses. I'm looking at the physical labor of the stage manager. So what did they physically do? Did they set up the rehearsal room? Did they, you know, 
go out and buy things? Like what were the things that they physically needed to do in order to like do their job during this time period? What was the like accepted physical demands of this job versus what's the intellectual stuff? Like, did they actually have to think through, you know, like what did backstage look like? What props were going on? And I'm not sure that I'll be able to actually like find this answer, but I'm really hoping that I'll be able to get very close to finding this answer. <laughs> Um, you know, because there are, I have not been able to find any memoirs of a prompter or a stage manager during this time frame that would explicitly say, this is, this what, is what I did today. <laughs> this huh. is what I did today. Because um, they're too busy running some... the show. <laughs> <laughs> have you been able to find some, like, prompt books? Do they have some, like, backstage paperwork or, like, props running or anything like that? Or even rehearsal reports that would yeah. help? Or is that more of a, a modern, a so, modern thing in the st stage management world. One of the things that I found most shockingly, and this actually happened during my MFA years, is that I actually found, um, like original prompt, uh, prompt book paperwork. So I found a scene change list for Hamlet, which told you exactly what's like set pieces needed to be go out on stage. And it was dated like, okay, don't totally quote me here, but I, it was like dated like 1750. Like it was like mind boggling you, to me. Where did you find that? Had date, it was dated like, so I, that one I think was either Harvard or Folger Shakespeare library. Wow. They, they just had a lot of, just a ton of information. They had a ton of prop books. Um, and that's, so you also can track. So awesome. I know, right? Um, you can also track like how blocking changed, you know, like in uh, the earliest like prompts that I really looked at, a lot of them use symbols um, in order to correlate. So they'd have they. So instead of um, today, we print out the script, right? And so we usually leave like either a blank page or um, uh, or like a map, uh, right. a blocking page, like on the other side. Whereas they would do what's called inter. Uh, leaving and so they basically take a book and they would open it and they put blank pieces of paper every other page so today normally when you're looking at your score you usually typically have your script on one side your blocking page on the other whether or not it's you know one side or the other but typically it is the same right um whereas at that point it flip-flopped back and forth because they were literally just throwing blank pieces of paper in between each script page that's actually that how i prefer doing it I, I insert it like that because then, especially in opera, when you have to turn the pages so fast, when I yeah. get to actually calling it, I just remove all those pages. So I have less page turns. But, exactly. But you said that was more of the, the standard. <laughs> Minus the yeah. three ring binder. Um, so, so yeah, like, so that was really exciting to me. And then I also found um, diaries, like ledgers, of what I would consider to be rehearsal slash performance reports. Now, these were not necessarily given out to everybody at the theater, but there was a ledger that basically said, this is what we rehearsed today. This is what we performed. This is what time we started. These were the actors that were there. These were the actors that did not come. And these are the people that filled in for those people. And they, and sometimes they would even include little notes to talk about like what happened during that performance. So there's a couple of them that were like, 
an audience member took out a gun in the middle of the performance and shot, you know, three bullets up into the sky. The entire audience panicked. So we had to like calm everybody down. <laughs> we escorted the gentleman out and then oh, we man. continued on the show. <laughs> or, or, you know, like, the queen had a baby today, and so therefore we canceled the show in honor of this birth celebration. We will reopen in three days. Or, you know, like, and sometimes there are, like, even really personal information. So, like, a sta- one of the ones, you know, stated that his daughter had been born that day. And, you know, but he, like, carried on with, like, the show. He was just like, my daughter, you know, like, my daughter, Claudia, whatever her name was, I can't really remember. But, um, you know, was born today. And so it was, a, it was almost, like, both really personal to the person that's recording it which according to the record at the library is the person that's the prompter for that for that company um and then it you know there was just a lot of information in those ledgers there was you know um who got paid what um who worked the entire season what shows they were doing because back then they did a different show every single night you know um this whole concept of really long runs is in my opinion, fairly new, you know, it really didn't get started until the late uh, 1800s, early 1900s. Um, You know, before that, actors needed to know 30 shows off the top of their head because they never, not to say they never knew what show that they were going to do that night, but it could easily change moments before the curtain started, you know, so they always needed to, which is why the prompter was so important because of the fact that they weren't necessarily as memorized as you would expect today because they had to know 30 different shows at any given moment. Oh, and sometimes I wonder why they were called a prompter and not necessarily a stage manager because they were feeding them all the, all the lines. Right. Right. And the stage manager at the time was really in charge of just managing the stage. He made decisions about who entered from where and what props were going to be used. And everything at that point was very, was stock stuff. So it was, it was much, simpler than it is today (laughs) (laughs) oh i wish it was all stuff pulled out of stock (laughs) (laughs) right (laughs) what i find interesting is and i don't know have you found any research in this in some opera companies even today there are still people called prompters that sit usually near the front of the stage the few times i've seen it and still prompt opera singers um is that kind of a a holdover from when theater did it or is that a completely different thing that just happens to be the same title so in many ways the prompter in opera does very similar things to what the prompter used to do in theater however um once opera really kind of got started they kind of reformed their own um hierarchy backstage um so although i have not done like extensive work on what the prompter was doing in opera at the time i can say that there is uh in general they have their own evolution which is very different from how the theater prompter kind of evolved or changed over time um so the uh, opera prompter is really um, usually included in music direction. They usually have a really um, 
important background, like in either musicology, like they know how to play music. They know they need to know that music like back in front. So it would not be like a theater, you know, stage manager, you know, like the theater stage manager today, which used to be the prompter who calls the show and that kind of stuff. It's a different training that's needed in order for you to prompt inside the opera. Um, So over time, those skills have just kind of diverged and changed and continued to get even more different than they used to be. Does that make sense? (laughs) Yeah. And I think it also makes sense in what you're explaining earlier, how prompters were so uh, needed because you were doing, you had 30 different shows memorized. I feel like opera, um, what I, what I call more traditional opera is that people learn 10, 15 roles and you could perform it um, in rep or you could perform it at different locations every single night. So you could literally get a call and be like, can you come sing Rosina from Barbara Seville in, you know, in Italy tomorrow night and you go down there and sing it. Well, if you haven't sung Rosina in two years, you'd know it, but you might not remember it. And so you have that prompter in the front of the stage that's kind of like helping you along because in traditional, what I call traditional opera like that, it's, especially in Europe, it's easy just to pull people back and forth because you know the part. Opera is now kind of getting away from that, which is probably why we don't see it as much anymore in today's opera or non-traditional opera, because it, I feel like it's kind of going more towards the the, um, theater side where you do have, you know, prep week and rehearsal periods and tech. And it's not just taking people who've all sung this part, rehearse them for two days and put them up. So I'm actually interested to see, you know, what it would be. See, you've researched 1750s to 1850s, and now you're doing 1850s and 1950s. I'm interested to see what would happen between the 1950s and 2050, you know, and if opera becomes more and more like, opera stage managers become more and more like theater stage managers or prompters. Like we've come across... A number of times, just the stage manager in the opera world is different than the stage manager in the theater world. And while we were all at Long Beach Opera, Darlene did run it more like a musical theater space as opposed to an opera space. Um, there are very different expectations from the opera world as straight plays and musicals. Right. The biggest one that you know is coming to my mind is the fact that an opera stage manager will frequently page you know, the singers to get up to the stage, which is like almost unheard of, I feel like in, you know, straight plays and even most musicals, you know, like there's the expectation that that actor is going to come up to the stage. Um, Whereas in opera, they're still doing that paging. Right. One of your articles was mentioning, and you mentioned this earlier, that the prompter had little bells that they would use to call different things. Did they ever use bells to like tell actors to get on stage or was it more for effects and scene changes um the bells were specifically more for scene changes scenic effects that were going on um the curtain rising and coming down it all really depended they also used whistles too they there was like a whole like system that was kind of in place for how they would call the show however they did have what's called a call boy It was usually a young boy somehow associated with the theater and his whole job was to stand right next to the prompter. And when the prompter gave him the number, 
the call boy would actually go down to the dressing rooms or the green room, wherever they were like hanging out, go get those actors that were needed for that entrance and then come back to the stage and make sure that they had the props that they were needed. So there was a paging system, although again, it's before electricity. So we don't have like a sound system to be like, you know, Harry come to the stage, you know? So instead the call boys go down and um, what, I mean, that would be more paperwork that I found also from around 1750 um, was a cowboy sheet for a show called Jane Shore. And so it just listed out who the actors were and what props they needed. And that was also really fascinating because that one I got to like hold in my hand and that one was like really cool. (laughs) (laughs) So that, that is a lot like opera, you know, you call people to stage and then the ASM's back there and they hand them the props that they need to have and you send them on stage when they need to go on stage. Yep. So I'm going to start calling them a call boy. I'm going to start requesting a call boy for some of my shows. <laughs> exactly. Yes. <laughs> I'm not sure where the call boy kind of like went out of style. I'm assuming that it probably has something to deal with sound systems or at least the ability for the actors to be able to hear from wherever they're at however I haven't quite gotten that far in my research I guess right now I'm really kind of focused on that 1870 to 1930 which is when all of these changes were kind of like going on and chaos and theater and um everything got significantly more complicated during that time frame so like just trying to sort out all of the tiny details for that time frame is really what I'm focused on right now. Why is it that specific time frame? Was that the second industrial revolution? Is that when like lights and electricity and, and sound systems started coming together? Why such a, a big shift then? Um, I, so I, it would depend on what historian you're probably talking to. Let me just preface that out. I, specifically and personally argue that the second industrial revolution significantly changed the way in which backstage was run because all of a sudden we start having um more complicated sets um as a result of um you know uh david david blasco kind of like started um doing all of these machinery and inventions and we also have steel mckay who literally built a theater that was an elevator so there was one set that was on one level and then the elevator would, you know, raise and there would be a totally different set on the other level. And then it would like come back down if you needed to like change the location again. Like, like we're talking really complicated things that we probably couldn't dream of beforehand. Like things are just getting much more complicated. Electricity ends up in um, theaters, roughly the... 1890s I would argue um I have again I have to do a little bit more research on the exact dates and times as far as like this time frame goes because there's so much going on um but I would argue it was roughly the 1880s 1890s when electricity started being introduced into theater so now all of a sudden you know um we can dim the house lights well we could kind of do that with gas lights beforehand but it just, it changes the way in which we are constructing theater backstage. We start getting more machinery. The tech people that are backstage are no longer, you know, able to just, you know, come into the theater. You know, they, they're not necessarily the Navy guys anymore that are doing those tasks. They need to know something about the uh, machinery. They need to know more about the electricity. They need to know, they just need to have more training and knowledge 
Um, and so that makes it much more complicated, which then, you know, of course, complicates the prompter's job. We also have like the director, you know, who kind of comes into the picture roughly 1870s. Um, and with that, that kind of pushes the stage manager out of the way. So the stage manager ended up starting to do more of what we would call technical direction today. He started building more of the sets, like actually building like the sets and like, um, again, making sure that those effects were happening and kind of really doing more of that technical direction slash production management. until finally things just continue to get more and more complicated and we start developing this backstage hierarchy where we have like a, you know, someone who's probably doing the technical direction, somebody who's doing the production management and then the stage manager kind of settled into what we would know as the prompter today taking over their responsibilities and then the prompter kind of switched over into being the assistant stage manager. That's kind of like my thesis. <laughs> in a one minute speech. <laughs> in, one minute, in a one minute clip, ignoring all of the nuances and <laughs> difficulties of trying to talk about something as complicated as like theater history in, you know, less than five minutes. <laughs> I just kind of assumed because theater had been around so long and been performing for so long that these this hierarchy had kind of been in existence for a similar amount of time. I never thought that it had really like changed at all. But I agree. <laughs> oh, it was a, quite a profound moment for me, <laughs> which is why you I discovered it. Yeah. You know, that the second industrial revolution was so much more important than theater historians are really giving it. That's my, like, my big argument. <laughs> um, I would also say that the start of the unions also really helped um, steer us into that institutionalized labor that we kind of have today, where we have the production manager, where we have the technical director in order to create specific definitions for all of those roles and people so you kind of in your the last article that you published which was uh february 28th stage management grievances in 1942 you talked about a a grievance that was filed the stage a stage manager committee filed it to actors equity um kind of saying they needed their own i don't think they were necessarily calling for their own union though i know that did happen but they were saying, you know, that stage managers needed to be their own people, that they weren't necessarily actors, that they needed their own training. They needed a pre-production week. So when did equity, I believe, started as another union and then became Actors' Equity? When did that all start? And then when was stage management always kind of a part of Actors' Equity? And then when did um, the, the Directors and Choreographers Guild break off from that? Do you, do you know those things? I know some of those things. <laughs> you just asked like know, four questions like at questions. once. <laughs> okay, so the start of Actors' Equity, they really formed as the Actors' Society in 1893-ish. Um, they kind of formed their own, they were more of a social group than a union, even though they really, really wanted to be a union. They just couldn't get the enough power and they were always looked at as more of like a social group rather than a union together. Um, part of what, actually, you know what? I think that I wrote, I said the wrong date. I, it might've been 1896, FYI. Um, I heard 18, <laughs> late 1800s. 
<laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, interestingly, though, the stagehands had actually already sort of unionized themselves in um, earlier than that. They had actually formed little local unions, and then in 1893, they actually decided to become this big, huge national organization, which eventually would end up being retitled and called IATSE, which is why IATSE is actually done on a local level, because that's actually how they started, whereas the Actors Union was based in New York. That was where, for a number of reasons, which we are not going to go into the basis for like the acting community was really in New York. Um, and so uh, they kind of started in New York and uh, in 1912 ish, they decided that they were going to disband the actor society and that they were going to rename themselves essentially um, actors equity association, which is what they are today. Um, they went through several strikes during those early years in and in an attempt to get um, more union power to get more of that bargaining power in order to get what they wanted, which was a contract um, with the producers um, who at the time, you know, they weren't paying on a regular basis. They kind of paid whenever they felt like it. There were a lot of tours going on in that time frame. And so frequently, which is why, um, <laughs> which is why New York was kind of the center base was because they would research it or they would rehearse in New York and then they would get on a train and they travel the country. And then frequently the producers would be like, you know what, this show's not making enough money. We're just going to stop the show. And so you'd show up to the theater and you'd find out that your show has been closed and that you have no way to get home. Because uh, at the time wow. there were no, there was no union, there was no rules, there was no none of that kind of stuff. So you would have to, and again, if you're lucky, you just got paid. But if you're not lucky, then you also have no money. So then, you know, you are getting stranded in these places and somehow having to make money, enough money for you to be able to even get home to like where you called home. And so it was like a really tough time, which is why, you know, they really felt strongly that a union needed to be put in place so that we could bargain with the producers union in order to get what they wanted, um, which was, you know, for okay. seven <laughs> names, we won't get into it. <laughs> I know the producers, the producers had a union already. So, well, the big thing is that actually the syndicate and the Schuberts were really big at this point in time. So I'm not sure that I would, uh, I'm not sure that I can answer the, whether or not they had already had a union. However, what I can say is that by the time that equity was really bargaining, attempting to get a contract in 1917, a group of producers, it was not necessarily all of the producers in New York, but a group of producers named themselves the UMPA. And so that's actually the first contract that I've been able to find. It's dated 1917. Um, and it basically argued for what equity was calling their seven names, which was uh, making sure that chorus women didn't have to pay for their costumes um, out of their own pocket because they weren't paid very much, making sure that actors were paid on a regular basis, um, making sure that if they were going to close the show, that there was two weeks notice given to the cast so that they could financially prepare and, you know, just prepare themselves in general. Um, making sure that the producers would pay for um, travel both out to wherever the tour was going, but also 
um, that they returned them to New York so that they didn't have to pay out of pocket. Um, and I can't remember the other three. Sorry. <laughs> all those, what, what I find interesting is it's been a hundred years and those are all still in every equity contract because they're so essential. They are so essential. Yes. <laughs> it has been a fascinating to track the changes within the equity contract in and of itself. That's like, I'm kind of also becoming an expert on <laughs> equity in general, really. Right. <laughs> um, but anyway, to go back to the, the, the point of from probably like 20 minutes ago, stage mentors were originally included sort of in the union. Basically, when equity first started, what they decided was that they would allow any person who was not antagonistic to their aims. So basically, as long as you weren't a producer, you could join their union. They were going <laughs> to do this and you could just, you know, pay your dues, whatever, join the union, that kind of stuff. So by default, almost, stage managers were included. Now, the other thing is that stage managers were often also acting in the shows that they were stage managing, which is why right. during the early years, we still have that prompter slash, slash assistant stage manager because they were the ones that were actually calling the show during the performance and the stage manager was still taking on acting roles on stage, if that makes sense. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> so they could either join as a result of being an actor or they could just join because they're not antagonistic. Um, in 1920, well, first of all, in 1919, there was a huge strike. Um, theater shut down in New York for four weeks in the summer of 1919. And the, the huge reason why Equity actually won their contract was because both IATSE and the Musicians Union decided to strike with them. So all wow. of a sudden you have all of these producers who are trying to do shows during the summer and everybody in New York is basically like, Nope. We're not working. We're crossing the picket lines. Because remember, this is like a huge time for unionization in New York City. And so instead, Equity ended up throwing up a show a couple streets down, you know, and started doing their own theatrical show in order to help, um, uh, like, pay all of those people who are now striking. They basically did, like, this huge variety show kind of a thing. And anybody who wanted to could be in it. And all of that money was actually put into like the Actors Fund. So that's another thing is that Actors Fund actually dates all the way back to like the beginning of Equity. That was one of their first goals. That was one of the first things that they created in order to help their members through these difficult times in order to help pay for those like strikes in order to help them meet, you know, make ends meet. That's like, and to me, that just blew my mind when I learned that because I couldn't believe that that has been such a long part of our union. So <laughs> in 1920, there was an arbitration case for an assistant stage manager who had been fired without their two weeks notice. And so basically through that arbitration, um, they were it was ruled in that person's favor because they were an equity member, even though they were the assistant stage manager and not necessarily the actor on that con in, on that show. Um, they won the arbitration and therefore, as a result of it, equity actually added the stipulation that assistant stage managers and stage managers were stage managers were, in fact, permanent members of the company and therefore covered by our union. And so then, the because we had just won the 1919 contract, 
the next contract that came out would have been 1924. And so that's the first time that we actually see the stipulation that um, the people that are included inside the union are the actors, um, stage management, company management. Uh, and then the one exception to that was chorus. And that was because chorus actually had their own sister union during this time frame that had started at the same exact time that equity started. So that chorus is probably the only other exception really. Um, and then the directors and choreographers union actually didn't um, break off. I for lack of better word, from equity until the 1950s, actually. So it was quite a bit after the stage managers filed their grievance with equity, and their aim was to get their own contract. They felt that actors needed to have their own contract and stage managers needed their own one because of the specificity required for stage managers. Um, that did not end up happening, and that still has not happened. I, mean, I was like, and it's still, yeah, we still are part of Actors' Equity. Yeah, so <laughs> just read that contract, and it says actor, like, literally everywhere on that thing. <laughs> but they do, and I believe, I mean, I'm more familiar with um, AGMA uh, for opera than I am for, for Equity, but we do now get prepaid production weeks, and we do get minimums, which, you know, I think was two of the things that they fought for in 1942. So even though we are considered under actors' equity, they have kind of broken it down a little bit and they do stipulate, right? Like principals, chorus, stage managers. It is, um, it, um, it's not necessarily stipulated. I feel like inside the contract itself that we normally sign as part of our first day of work or you know, if you end up doing it beforehand, um, however, it is written into the uh, like rule book, essentially. We have our own right. sex inside equity that basically says, this is what stage managers are you know, required to kind of do. These are the like 15 roles that you are not allowed to do unless you are getting paid additional money. These are the like five things that you are not ever allowed to do if you are also stage managing. And so through that, those definitions, it kind of carves out what our role is according to equity, um, right. which I imagine is as a result of similar, maybe not grievances, but I'm sure that through those conversations about what stage managers needed to be included into the contract, that was kind of like equity's way of compromising get what they needed in order to do their job. So when you finish your degree, what mm -hmm. is your plan to go back to stage management, to become a historian and write novels, to go into teaching and teach people about this? Yes. All of the above. <laughs> Great. Perfect. All of the above. <laughs> My dream world, this is what I want to do, is I would love to get a job at a university. I would love to be able to see, teach both stage management classes, theater history classes, and even specialty stage management classes about the history of equity, even if it's not like a sole class dedicated to like history of equity. But for example, like that equity class that I took during my MFA, being able to implement the history into that class, I think would be really beneficial because I feel like we have lost so much information about the importance of why equity got started that mm -hmm. you almost 
take it for granted a little bit, you know. Um, now, there is a push, I would say, right now to get more stage management voices out there. And I feel uh, like I think that that's a really great thing because I think that that will help us get to, like, the things that we want and what we need out of future contracts. But I also think that we need to be taught the power of kind of unions and um, how we really just got started as a union. Uh, and then during that time frame, I would also like to publish several books. I have several books that are on my mind. The first of which would probably be whatever my dissertation ends up being, which mm -hmm. I imagine in this moment is going to be specifically about the American stage manager's labor between 1850 and 1950, looking at the physical, um, intellectual, and emotional labor that stage managers have always kind of had to do. Um, and then tracking that kind of through history, talking about different techniques that were used in order to kind of like, even though that would be the framework, I'd really be incorporating a lot of other information, like how queuing technology changed over that time frame and how, you know, the role of the stage manager clearly changed, you know, how the prompter, you know, kind of like suddenly dropped out of nowhere and, um, you know, looking at how, you, how the union really changed how we define stage managers during that time frame, being able to look at it from a couple of different views, but really the through line would be what is it that a stage manager does is essentially like the number one question that we'd really be looking at during my dissertation. Um, and then I have several other dream books that are like, I would really love to be able to make like a coffee table book. That's got like old paperwork. Like yes. Old of oh old my God. That would be so amazing. Would so buy that. For me I and twin know, and our parents who wouldn't get it done and oh my gosh, dream world, dream world. <laughs> we'll see. Um, and then there's like I'm sure that there are other things that I would love to you know um, continue to explore, especially with again the union um, and stage management. Um, and then I would also love to find, I would love to eventually work in a city that is large enough to have a few equity summer shows going on so that I would be able to continue stage managing during the summer. That would like be my ideal year. So, you know, September to May I'd be teaching, but then during the summer I would be actually using the knowledge that I spent a lot of time learning. <laughs> right. That is, that is so awesome. So do you have like two more years or how long are you just a, kind of a seven year plan to finish the dissertation? Um, so I, in two weeks, I'm taking my qualifying exams. Oh man. <laughs> Provided that I, Pass those, which I will find out then two weeks after that. So in roughly a month, I will be able to know whether or not my game plan is still on. Um, but it is my hope that if the next three years, I will devote to both researching and writing the dissertation itself. So it is my aim to finish within five years from start to finish. Um, what I've noticed from a lot of my peers that are currently already working on their dissertation is that sometimes life gets in the way and sometimes your research changes over time, like either what you're interested in or what you're thinking, like an assumption that you might have made that's been like kind of like 
steering your research, you all of a sudden find out that it's like not really what you thought it was. So then that kind of like extends your timeline. So there are a number of different like issues that might get in the way, <laughs> but it is like my the fact that you're expecting your first child in a few months might, might put things on hold. <laughs> A little bit, maybe. No, <laughs> those are perfectly easy to raise while still studying and concentrating and getting plenty of sleep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I am very fortunate in that my husband works in as a nurse. And so really he works three days a week because he does 12-hour shifts. So provided that. He works over the weekend. That gives me four solid days that I'm like, peace out. Like, <laughs> <laughs> have fun. Uh, but again, I we don't have the kid here yet. So who knows what will actually end up happening. <laughs> yeah, they do change a couple things. Yeah. <laughs> well, we definitely... Wish you luck, and I can't wait till this dissertation comes out. And um, I hope you come back into the stage management world because there's very few stage managers I like working with. So there's always people that I need back in my field. Um, yeah, and maybe in a year or two, we can get you back on the podcast. You can give us an update on all the new things that you've learned because you've really only, well, I mean, besides your, your master's degree, you've only really been studying this about a year now. So the fact that you've already found like so much cool information. Yeah. I've been very fortunate. Although I'm not gonna lie, probably in like two years, I'm gonna come back on here and I'm be like, okay, listen, I have to retract a whole bunch of stuff that I said in that first podcast. <laughs> I found out even more stuff. Like, let me let me correct myself on record. <laughs> but that is so cool. Like, I just like all of this. I was like, it's like a history class, but what I'm actually interested in. So it's great, <laughs> right? I know, I know. So maybe we'll bring her back a lot more. Um, and then we're we're totally gonna link um all of your stage direction stuff to our to our um, Instagram page and Facebook page so that awesome. we can keep getting it out there because I know that all the stuff you've posted so far has been so interesting. I especially love the crash course in American stage management, which is where you talked about stage management stage manager versus prompter versus director. Um, and then all the fun stuff like women in stage management, murder on stage, you know, stuff that everybody likes reading about. So, Thank you so much for giving us this information. Um, feel free to continue to share. I love that in all your articles, you actually talk about like the books and stuff that you found those from. I'm kind of tempted to go buy books right now and to like read all these things that you found because it's so interesting. If it's and, on an audio book, it's yeah. already done. Uh, awesome. Thank you so much. I'm going to go. No, no. One more question, Twin. You forgot the last question. Oh, God damn it. Right. <laughs> Our last question, I can't believe I forgot that, is, and I know you do, do you have any twin stories? Oh my gosh, I have so many twin stories. Yes! <laughs> Most people are stumped by this question. Um, I'm just not sure that they're appropriate. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's excellent. Well, here's, here's like probably, so I'm assuming that by twin stories, what you really mean are like crazy things that like happen as a result of like being a like twin, like crazy things that like other See, people. No, that's the first one. You are a twin. Yay. Yeah. I think you're our first twin besides us. I am a twin. I have a twin brother. <laughs> um, now my twin brother does not, I, 
Well, I can't say that he doesn't have the twin power because he kind of does. He's just not as like in tune with his twin power as I am. So <laughs> males, they do that. I know it. It, it totally is. <laughs> He's just not all that into it. Um, in it would have been two thousand seven. Um, my brother was in the army. He, uh, he was, he ended up doing like three different tours, one to Iraq and two to Afghanistan. Um, it was in March. It was like two weeks before Easter and I was sitting in rehearsal and all of a sudden my knee was like freaking killing me. And I was like, what is going on with my knee? Like, this is so crazy. But it was almost like a phantom pain. Like, it didn't feel like, like I had hurt myself, but it was just like this like really weird feeling. And I was like, you know what? I have, to, I have to find out what's going on with my brother. But of course, he's in Afghan or Iraq, I think, at the time. And I had no way of me being able to contact him. The only way that you can hear from them is when they call you. So I called up my mother immediately that night. I woke her up at like midnight and I was like, listen, here's the deal. As soon as you call Ryan, like as soon as Ryan calls you, you need to tell him that I need to be his next phone call. Like I need to talk to him and I need to talk to him like literally an hour ago. So as soon as you hear from him, you need to pass that phone, like tell him that he needs to call me immediately. So I'm like, yeah, yeah. Okay, fine. Whatever. You know, two weeks goes by and he's called my mom, but my mom has forgotten to tell him that he needs to call me. So now it's (laughs) Easter morning. And I'm so angry at him because he hasn't called me. And I've been paranoid for the last two weeks about what's gone on with my brother, right? So he gets on the phone with me and I go, Ryan, what did you do to your left knee? And he goes, what, what, what do you mean? And I said, what did you do to your left knee? And he goes, it's, it's not that big of a deal. I didn't tell anybody. Like, how, how, how do you know that? And I was like, Ryan, I'm your twin sister. There are just certain things that I just know about you. Like, I know this is (laughs) crazy, but there are certain things that I just know about you. He goes, well, it's not a big deal. I mean, I had to go to the hospital, but it's like really not a big deal. And I go, oh my God, Ryan, I swear to you, I am going to kill you. (laughs) You are in Afghanistan and I am terrified for your life. And he goes, I was just I was just playing kickball with some of the guys and I twisted my knee the wrong way and I damaged this ligament and I probably have to have surgery. And I was like, oh my God. I but at least he, like, I was thinking he was shot or something. I'm glad that it wasn't a bullet, but like really when that stuff happens, you need to call me. Like I need to be your first phone call because you never know what twin power is going on between the two of us. <laughs> oh, I hope he feels your pregnancy. Payback. Labor? I hope well, it goes through. I really hope so. We will find out. I'm really excited. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to find out. <laughs> Excellent. Um, but the... Like, I guess the adjacent twin story to that is the fact that every single time, like, and when I say every single time, I mean, literally every single time I call anyone in my family, either they are already on the phone with my twin brother or my twin brother calls within 30 minutes of me getting on the phone with them. Like, literally every single time. All the time. It is uncanny and it has become a family joke because of the fact that literally... I call and then Ryan immediately calls like within 30 minutes. 
Yeah, there's a number of times I call Cindy and I'm like, why are you not answering? And I call mom and I'm like, why are you not answering? And then one of them calls back to like, because I was talking to the other one. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Happens all the time. (laughs) Yay, you're one of my favorite twin stories, but I think you're also one of our first twins. (laughs) That makes me so happy. Yeah, most people are like, well, I know twins. (laughs) Now because I've admitted that story. I mean, I don't think Stacey felt it when I broke my foot, so you're you must be pretty in tune. No, but sometimes I feel it when you get really bad headaches or something. Yeah, that's true. true. Well, again, he doesn't really feel it. Like I got into a huge car accident, and I don't think that he realized it. Like I don't think he felt it. So it'll be really interesting when labor comes around. (laughs) That'll be the telling. That'll be the telltale right there. It's like, oh, my sister's uh, having a kid. I'm going to be an uncle soon. Hopefully this goes fast. (laughs) Calling up my mom like, hey, what news have you heard? Yeah. I think she's a neighbor. What do you think? My mom's going to be like, what? (laughs) That'll be (laughs) excellent. That'll be great. (laughs) Okay, so I think that's uh, a little over an hour. We are excellent, but we're definitely going to have you back to be updates on stage management history, history of equity, history of stage management in general. We'll just, whenever we have a question, we'll just call you up and be like, okay, we have a question on something. You're the expert Great. now. <laughs> Anytime. <laughs> Thank you. And, and good luck in two weeks with your qualifying exams. Thank you. Yeah. And baby <laughs> in a couple Bye. weeks after that. <laughs> Oh, yeah, and a baby. Both things. Oh, yeah. And <laughs> no, I got to get through the exams first. I'm not even thinking about the baby. Like, the baby yeah. Is like... That's yeah. next. One one thing at a time. Exams. Right. Baby. <laughs> Perfect. <Yep. laughs> Thanks, Jen. Bye. 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 <laughs> Thank you for listening to today's podcast. For more, visit our website at twinstalktheater.podbean.com and subscribe on iTunes or Google Play Music. You can also interact with us on Facebook or Instagram at twinstalktheater. Title music, Dance Macabre, is provided by Kevin McLeod of incomtech.com under Creative Commons License 3.0.